Hey, hello everybody and welcome to the fourth episode of the SGN podcast. We made it this far. Let's let's keep making it like this, I suppose. My name is Andrew uh, and with me this week, as usual, we've got Brian. Greetings, citizens. <laughs> and Ryan. Hello, you're probably sick of the sound of my voice after this week on YouTube. How could anybody be sick of the sound of uh, Ryan's voice? Uh, do you know what? Yeah, voice of an angel. Like, you should hear me on the karaoke. <laughs> okay. The first SGN night well, before out we do that, has a theme, and it's going to be karaoke. Oh, oh no! What have I let myself in for? Oh, okay, okay, man. I love it. Of course Things you do. You're right. a musician, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a diva, so <laughs> it's perfect for me. But a Tina Turner um, on. No, so let's hear a little bit. <laughs> well, let's hear a little bit more of the sound of your voice, Ryan. Thank you. What, what have you been up to this week? What's been keeping you busy? Do you know what? I've uh, taken the plunge and got into D and D. Um, I've started. I made a character. We did a zero session uh, with my mates a couple of week, uh, couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago, even, and um, sort of trying to keep up with that sort of not staring at a screen idea that would have come about because of D and D, but obviously now we've got to stare at a screen. I decided last night to um, paint a pot for my uh, my dice because um, my girlfriend paints jars and stuff so I made one with um, Skyrim runes that says my Skyrim character's name round up. Wow. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> no, 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 no. It combines D&D and arts and crafts. What's not to love? Exactly that. Can, can I ask, as, as someone who doesn't know a lot about D&D, how do you play it via like a Zoom call? Like, is there tools in place to let you do that? Um, yeah, so what we did was actually um, just, we went on Tabletop Simulator on Steam. Um, and just, so essentially Tabletop Simulator is just like a bare bones game where people can mod in like tabletop games. Um, so they're not official, but it's the closest you can get without being in the same room as someone with the box in front of you. Um, so we just use that, uh, which means filling in your character sheets a wee bit fiddly because you've got to like collect each individual section and you know type away and then like you know roll your stats and all that. But it was good fun. It, um, it was just a nice excuse to like chat with my mates again, if I'm honest, because like we haven't all sat down in one call since probably last summer you know like we haven't really been keeping up to date um so it was just nice just to like have an excuse to sit down and we uh we built our characters in about a couple hours maybe an hour hour and a half and then we just sat on the call for the rest of the night and just caught up which was nice um so yeah like i i'd recommend anyone gets into like something along those lines just for that just for the social aspect i'm going you have to tell us ryan what character are you? Oh, well, I am a dragonborn fighter um, whose main motivation is to find the dra- find the dragon and kill it. Um, I give him a bit of a tragic backstory. And so, yeah, his sort of like his whole motivation is to kill the dragon that once wronged him. How very East Enders, albeit with fiery breath and wings. Dun, 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 da, 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 dun. <laughs> And on that bombshell. Um, how about you? <laughs> oh, I was going to ask how about yourself, Brian. Are you still working on the expanse or anything? Still working on the expanse. Uh, I am watching the TV series. I'm listening to the audiobook when I go out for runs. Um, and I'm trying to kind of keep them both in equilibrium. Uh, I've gone back to series two of The Boys, which is phenomenal. Um, it's if you haven't come across it yet it kind of subverts the whole superhero trope Um, and I was delighted to see that the single worst film in the entire history of cinema Titanic 2 has now made it to Amazon Prime in the UK so if you haven't seen it yet it's absolutely worth your while because every single thing about that movie is wrong sorry Titanic 2 surely there's not much to go with after the first one (laughs) Well, it's not a direct sequel. It's not like Titanic 2, The Sinking. It's actually, I think it's 100 years after the original, you know, uh, voyage. And they've built another vessel called Titanic 2. What could go wrong? Everything. (laughs) And I mean everything. The script, the direction, the cast, the production, the set. It's the costumes. Dear 
Jesus, it doesn't even make logical sense. Titanic 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> that would have made way more sense. Oh, brilliant. I think it, I'm going to have to watch that now. You, you have to. You have to. Please, as a favour to me and to all mankind, you will walk away feeling so talented, so intelligent and so creative because you were not involved in the production of this movie. So do you know, I it's do... absolutely worthwhile as a motivational effort, if nothing else. I do love a good, a good, terrible movie. Um, just before Christmas, back when we could still kind of meet up with people, me and a mate watched um, watched Samurai Cop. Don't know if you've ever come across it. It is fantastically terrible. Like everything about the title tells you what the the movie's going to be about. It's just awful. I do feel like I don't, I don't need to watch it now. It's because that is, you know, it does what it says in the tin. Yeah. He's a cop. Who's a samurai? Yeah, or except like, he yeah. doesn't pick up a sword until like the last like half hour of the movie. Or he does, but then he never gets to use it until about the last half hour. I swear they just like miss the whole selling point of their own movie. You're contradicting yourself now. It either does what it says in the box or... or it's, uh, it, it's more, it's just the movie is equally as bad as the title. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. It's, uh, yeah, I have a Pinterest board where I collect the video greats of the 1980s. You know, the ones with taglines like, it's high noon, the end of the universe. Um, um, well, this one... Based on my movie viewing on that rather than, you know, and the box art rather than, you know, who's in it or uh, what the story's about. Well, the tagline for Samurai Cop is, you have the right to remain silent, dead silent. <laughs> You see, that's a lot more clever than I than I think we could have gone for. I think you have the right to remain dead. <laughs> yeah. Much. More concise. It's the writer in me. <laughs> yeah, like, just get that word count down. It's true. And so, Andrew, what about yourself? What's been floating your boat this week? Uh, I'm afraid I have not seen any terrible films to report on, so apologies for that. But um, I... Shock Horror, I actually played a new game recently. Well, actually, it's a sort of new game recently. Is that I, I picked up that um, Super Mario 3D World re-release for the Switch. Um, and it has this new part in it called Bowser's Fury, which is, it's really took me by surprise, actually. Um, have either of you played Super Mario Odyssey? Is that the one with the water gun? That's Sunshine. Uh, Sunshine. Odyssey's the most recent one. Oh, wait, no. I, I haven't got around to it, now. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, that one was very similar to... It, it feels like Nintendo are kind of moving towards doing more kind of open world stuff now. There's Breath of the Wild, and then that Odyssey felt like a sort of step in that direction in the sense that you had a lot of levels that were open and you could go about the various goals in whatever way you wanted and there was just goals everywhere essentially uh and in this one it is actually an open open world mario game which is it's yes yeah, so far um i'm really taken aback by how well they can take this thing that we've done so many times uh, over so many years and find a way of making it feel modern i guess um i'm really enjoying it so far i was uh, and i would definitely even if you have no interest in it or have already played the 3d world part like it seems like it's if you want like this is the next step for mario it seems like that's this it's the way to go and it seems like lots of people would agree because it's already i think it outsold the the wii u original something like three times already i mean that's week. mainly because so no one owned the wii u speaks more to the wii u <laughs> yeah exactly it's well there is only one nintendo and it is a classic franchise for that very reason so fabulous so folks should we jump into the week's news i think we should yeah um so what's been happening on the website guys it's been a busy busy week a busy week um lots of business stories and lots of playaway previews so uh, i'll kick off um one of the first things we posted this week was the fact that there is a new online course that has been created by the University of Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Futures Institute, which is focused on building a better creative business with data. Now, I know how that sounds, right? It doesn't feature the words Mario or Explosion or Space Marine. So it's not a natural story for a games industry website. But the harsh reality is that if you don't understand your data, 
you're probably not going to be a games business for very long. You know, it's not just about download numbers or player numbers. It's about average revenue per user or average revenue per paying user. It's about your your download, downloadable content. It's about um, your conversion rate, your funnels, all of the fun things that proper grown-up businesses need to be able to do. So this is a fantastic opportunity. It's about three hours a week over the course of um, six or ten weeks. And just go and do it. Just go and do it. It will be one of the best investments in time that you can possibly make. Perfect. Yeah, um, I think we're going to get into that in the sort of main body more. So I think we'll we'll skip to the next oh, next yeah. story. Um, so, <laughs> oh, uh, sorry. Um, Yuki submits proposal for UK games growth. I think you covered this one as well, Brian, didn't you? I did. I did. It's our friends at Yuki, um, who are the UK Wide Games Industry Association, have um, submitted a number of proposals to the UK government. Um, in advance of the budget that's happening in March, essentially outlining several proposals which will help the games industry across the whole of the United Kingdom grow and really achieve its full potential. And so they're looking for uh, the creation of a games investment fund, they're looking for the creation of a games training fund to bring new talent into the sector, a £700,000 trade and investment plan to increase our overseas markets, an awful lot of, um, you know, really clear and reasonably simple proposals which would help the games industry to become you know the behemoth and juggernaut that it is in other areas of the world you know we have we all we all know that the game sector is doing pretty well and on a global level the number of players the number of games being played has never been higher but what do we as the uk need to do in order to make this one of the best places in the world to to make video games so it's a great way of actually, you know, saying to the government, look, this is a, a really, really clear investment. You know, the, the growth of the game sector, I mean, we're talking about two, a two trillion pound or two trillion dollar market within the next few years. Um, and we're not looking for a huge amount of capital investment. We're not looking for studios to be built. We don't need facilities. You know, with fairly simple investment in terms of creating new intellectual property, and helping companies build better businesses, the opportunities for growth are totally vast. So it's a, a, a really good story and it's something that we're absolutely going to be keeping an eye on. Yeah. Has Yuki been successful previously with these like similar kind of proposals? or, or this kind Yeah, of well, we, we have uh, the, the, the UK uh, video games tax relief system, right. which came about specifically from uh, industry lobbying. So, you know, we've got hard evidence that this kind of effort, this kind of applied pressure can actually make a big, big difference. Um, and the success of the VGTR system is there to be seen. Um, so yeah, extending that system alone could help, but introducing these other um, you know, options, these other uh, elements of the programme could help really sort of springboard the game sector way beyond where it currently is. Perfect. And um, now we are coming to our first uh, playaway story, which I believe was covered by our very own Andrew Gordon on the um, the website, which was our interview with uh, Gabe Elvery. Yeah, uh, absolutely fan- uh, well, fantastic and fascinating. Uh, it's all the F-words are on, well, not all the F-words. <laughs> yeah, it's not all the F-words. <laughs> okay, let's lean it in here, Gordon. <laughs> the F-words <laughs> on my mind because... Uh, Gabriel Elvery's uh, subject that uh, that they are studying is all to do with um, fantasy and the fantastic, which, to be honest, I will let them be the one to explain it to you because it's quite a bit, uh, it's it's a little bit complicated to get your head around, or at least my head around. But um, really, I would just point folks to read the article, to watch the video, and knowing that you're going to learn about um basically the kind of the importance of the, the kind of emotional relationships that people are, are are making with games and how they might be kind of deeper or um more meaningful in ways that we don't really think about generally that you have this impression you know there's the kind of cliche impression of someone sitting alone in their room playing something by themselves but actually even if they're not playing online with someone else they're engaging in a kind of like social activity that 
is beneficial in itself and also, you know, might be playing into their development as a person or their character or something like that. So I would definitely go check out, check out um, what they had to say about that. Yeah, yeah and uh, it was a fascinating introduction to the whole field of game studies. Um, and if you've not listened to it, you've not read it yet, you'll find uh, the, the video up on the YouTube channel. Andrew pulled together a phenomenal summary of the of the whole talk. And it's not an area that we've covered on the website terribly often, if at all. And this whole games studies and the ways in which gaming are having a, a profound impact on us as a society um, is absolutely something that we want to be doing far, far more of. So it's a wonderful introduction and we, we will absolutely urge you to go and check it out in whichever format makes you happy. Uh, do you mind if I'll just quickly go back to something Andrew said about um, like it's quite a difficult topic to get your head around when you first think about it, the whole um, parasocial relationships and what Gabe was talking about. But if you go and check out their blog, uh, Digital Fantastic, that is like you know once you've watched the video or listened to, uh, read the article or both, please please do both. We we love the traffic. Um, but once you've done that, um, if you still want to find out a wee bit more then definitely follow it, go over to the blog because it's really great. I've been reading through it and I have to admit, like, if you try to just sort of skim read it uh, and try to go like, oh, I'm just going to like try and take in some wee odds and ends and some interesting wee facts, you're not going to get it. You've got to sort of sit down and properly like think about it. But it's really cool and it's, yeah, it's given me a lot to think about. So well worth a read. It's a, it's a huge, huge area of gaming that doesn't get explored nearly enough. So, uh, highly recommended. Um, so, to move on, uh, seamlessly, I may add, uh, BAFTA Scotland Guru Live online entries open. I believe this was another one by our uh, lovely editor, Brian Baglow, because you've had a busy week. <laughs> well, you know, I don't like sitting twiddling my thumbs. Um, yeah, this is another great piece um, coming from a business side of things, but this time it's focused on individuals working in film, television, games, animation. So the whole of the screen industries. And it's a programme that's run by BAFTA in Scotland that encourages people in the first couple of years of their career or people who are just about to enter the, you know, their career um, but who have a couple of projects underneath their belt to sign up and learn from the leaders in the field. So if you are working in games, you'll hear from game creators, developers, publishers. You'll get a CV workshop to help, you know, uh, brush up your resume you'll get a whole uh, bunch of live events that will help you to understand more about the sector that you're trying to get into and the best part of all of this it's free so applications are open now and if you're at college you're at university you are looking for work this program is absolutely ideal and we can't recommend it enough the people at BAFTA the people at BAFTA Scotland do some phenomenal work you'll get networked up way simpler through this program than you will with almost anything else so check it out you'll find it on the website entries are open until i think march the 4th so uh, go get your name down and tell them we sent you Literally no reason not to right yeah like everyone's favorite price is free right so i mean you might as well if you if you've got the time go for it um, so anyway, yeah, uh, to follow up the Playaway content, um, Andrew, you interviewed another one of the speakers. Yes, so we spoke with um, William Kavanaugh, who's another person over at University of Glasgow, PhD researcher like Gabriel. And um, again, I would say you're much better getting the explanation straight from the horse's mouth as it was. So um, just a brief summary. Uh, William talked to us about game balancing and the kind of fascinating he's, stuff he's doing using kind of um, very complicated mathematics that's usually used for um, what's called safety critical systems which is like any any situation that someone's life might be at risk if it goes wrong so things like controls in a nuclear power plant or um systems in aircraft or something like that so this is like really really complex important maths and he's using that with games essentially using them to work out various different ways of playing games and then using that information uh to help with balancing and it sounds 
bizarre and it's incredibly fascinating and you should go listen to him talk about it. <laughs> I think William needs to sit with me while I play XCOM just to help me out a wee bit because otherwise I'll never see the end of the game. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, it, it's it's one of these it's one of these areas where until we spoke to him, I don't think any of us had any idea that this kind of research was actually being undertaken. You know, and applying a formal system for game balance is not something that I think many developers out there would have considered unless it's something that's, you know, affected them directly. Uh, so knowing that there are people out there using hard sums in order to figure out how you produce the perfect balance, you know, keep pe people coming back to your game, you know, keep that difficulty curve just on the right side of frustrating because I know that if you're a gamer, you've rage quit a game or you've got to the point where you just go, ah, enough. You know, I can't get past this one particular piece. Um, and you end up sort of going away and wondering, okay, why did that happen? Why, what, at what point did the people playing and testing this game not actually sit down and think, uh, maybe this is too hard? So, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's got a huge amount of applications within the sector and it's something that, again, hopefully we'll get uh, Will to come back at some point soon and talk to us and maybe even give us a demonstration. Do you, uh, do you know, like, just the sort of concept of what he's doing reminds me an awful lot of um, back when Hello Games first announced um, No Man's Sky and how they said that they were going to make a universe using maths. It's quite, uh, it sort of has that similar vibe to it of like, how? Like, I just, I don't understand how 1 plus 1 equals 2 can convert into all of this, which, you know, I'm just not smart enough to understand it, is essentially what I'm trying to say. Well, that's why William and his brethren, his peers and colleagues are out there. It's, they're doing all the hard stuff that we humble, whatever the hell we are, you know, so we don't have to. <laughs> It makes a lot of sense. Um, do you know what, sticking with the playaway stuff, we spoke to Ali Lowe um, about his upcoming talk. And this is one that I'm really excited about. Um, so Ali Lowe, if you don't know, uh, of Low Tech Games, is dyslexic. And he's done quite a few different projects to do with dyslexia and accessibility within games. And since I'm dyslexic, it sort of hit quite close to home for me. And I quite like, uh, I, I really enjoyed our time, sat, like, sit down with him and just talking about his experiences within the industry and how he's made a name for himself as well as what he's doing to try and improve it for people with dyslexia. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that he's he's pursuing a very particular route in his own game design, you know, the, the really ultra old school to the point of, you know, 3D printing his own uh, Nintendo Entertainment System cartridges is is amazing. And the fact that there's a market there for it, as has been proved by, you know, successful Kickstarter campaigns, and um, that despite his interest in parasitic life forms like fleas and tapeworms, um, yeah. is, is really really fascinating. But again, uncovering the fact that, you know, the, the fact he he has dyslexia, the fact he's had issues with games, and not only has he developed games featuring that as a topic. But he's working with the team at InGame in Dundee to actually address this and create a text-to-speech um, technology that pretty much anyone from the one-man indie team all the way through to the big multinationals can use to improve the accessibility of their titles. It's phenomenal. Yeah, you know, he was... Uh, pioneering once more. Yeah, he was speaking about it on, um, on the video that's on the channel now. Um, I think it went live on Wednesday, I want to say. Yes, Wednesday. Um, and it's called the Select Tech. And essentially, it's, a, it's just a file you can drop into your game's files, provided I think the game has to be made in Unity. But if you drop the um, this file into your game's files, essentially, yeah, it provides text-to-speech, and you can uh, allow the player to pause at any point to read information. So if you've got something similar to, like, a Telltale setup, where you've got like four or five decisions to choose between and you've got a timer on it, you can allow the player just to pause that and take their time to read the like, read the options and then unpause and select. Um, and that's it's really cool because, uh, yeah, Ali and I spoke about that and how, yeah, sometimes, especially with being dyslexic, if you're playing a game, yeah, like Telltale, 
um, or like a Telltale game even, you will get to a point where you've read maybe one or two of the options and you can see the timer's only got like a second left. So you just pick one that's like, I normally press X, so I'm just going to press X. And, you know, like, you might end up, like, you know, going down a totally different path to what you wanted to, but it was because you just felt flustered and you couldn't keep up with that. Yeah, it's it's going to be a great little tool. It's going to be a, a really, really useful way to make a group of people with, with a certain condition who have never really been catered for, or it's never been possible to cater for easily uh, within smaller games and smaller budgets, it should open gaming up for them in a way which has never been possible before. So hats off to Ali. And again, please go and check out the interview because he's a cool guy and, you know, one of the hottest young indie startups in, in Dundee. It's He's not paying us to say that, but he does enjoy it. And he is a listener. So this one's for you, Ali. Yeah, this one goes out to you. Indie in Dundee. Um, you know, keeping with the uh, Games and Empathy mini talks at Playaway, um, today, if you're listening to the podcast the day it goes live, um, we have an interview with Marina Diaz uh, about uh, her part in the Games and Empathy mini talks. And she's speaking about her role in ethical games development and how they're avoiding things like crunch and giving uh, employees more time to themselves to like because she believes that if you give someone time to like, you know, spend with their family, when they come back to work, they're going to be more effective and more efficient, as well as just you're treating them like human beings, instead of saying you have to sleep in the office and make sure that, uh, like, yeah, make sure this game gets out by its deadline, because we've all read or seen things about developers and what they go through during crunch time, and it's just... It's, yeah, it, it is unethical. Like, it's that simple. Like, you hear stories of developers sleeping at their desks just so then they can get as much development time in as possible in that couple of weeks before, um, before sort of shipping. This is, well, this is the thing. You know, the games industry is not notorious for its widespread best practice when it comes to looking after your employees or indeed planning your game project effectively. And so the whole crunch um, a, the whole issue of crunch has been something that has existed for at least the last 15-20 years, possibly as long as the industry itself. But it's really come to the forefront with things like um, EA Spouse and, and some of the whistleblowers who really shone a light on the fact that their partners or family members were being expected to you know, stay in the office or work 16-hour days or whatever it happens to be. So we spoke to Marina, Ryan and I spoke to her about not only the working conditions and um, the issues around developing games within the sector, but about the content of the games themselves, because she's the, the CEO of a studio called Three of Cups. And many, many of the games that she's worked on, both in her working life and personally, are far more focused on, you know, positive emotions and encouraging people to to. And participate in a game in a way which doesn't necessarily accentuate the competitive, the combative, or the, you know, uh, screaming bloody murder and blowing shit up approach, which many, many other games seem to favour. Yeah, um, so like, I think you went through her Itch.io page before we started, and there was an insane amount of projects. She's just one of those people that just doesn't stop working. And yeah, the stuff she does... Like, I was going to say in her own time, but even what she's doing with uh, Je ne sais quoi, with um, uh, Dordogne, it's a very similar idea of just, like, yeah, this sort of very wholesome, like, Beautiful, experience. Relaxed yeah. And ex- yeah, it, it, it's an experience rather yes. than a competition. Um, and again, you know, some of, the, some of the work, and it goes from really, really simple, you know, little... 12, 24, 48 hour game jam games and personal projects all the way through to you know far more fully realized projects. But it's it's a different approach and it's a different um a different way of of thinking about games and game design when it comes to doing something that makes people feel good. You know, so so we're very good at the jump scares and we're very good at the horror and we're very good at the, the explosions. Particularly good at the explosions. Oh yeah. Um but yeah, I, it's, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Marina and, and really finding out more about, I guess, the new generation of, of designers who are coming through who are interested in 
approaching this whole notion of designing and making video games from a different point of view. Uh, and I thought it was a particularly great piece. And I'm looking forward to her um, panel at, uh, or sorry, Microtalk at Playway because she and Ali are going to be speaking together on empathy and gaming. Yeah, I think if you haven't sort of signed up to go and watch that talk, like those talks, it's definitely worth doing because, like, yeah, both the interviews with Ali and with Marina were just really exciting to do and just like sort of made me think about the industry in a different way. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially like some of the things that Marina was saying about about crunch, especially like yeah, like, like I said, we have all read and seen stuff on it, but hearing someone speak about it like directly to me was a totally different experience and definitely sort of made me think about it more and you know like made me go yeah no that is that's a shitty thing to do to your employees why why is that just commonplace that's a discussion for another day it definitely is um but the uh, speaking about a discussion um this, this leads us straight on to our big topic of the week which is selling games please talk to the press like we, we I mean, we'll chase you if you want but i mean you know, if you want your game to do well, you have to tell someone about it. Okay, okay. So this is where we're, we're diverting from our previous formats that we've used in the, in the last few podcasts, folks. We're going to pick a topic every week, something that's relevant to the games industry, something that everybody can and should have an opinion on, and then we're going to dive into it. So we're going to, we're going to talk this week about an issue that kind of sprang to light um, at the beginning of the week. So one of the the first stories that we published was about the fact it's Lemmings' 30th birthday. So the video game that uh, arguably kickstarted the whole of Scotland's reputation as a as a game pioneer and gave us a presence on the global gaming sort of stage turns 30 year old or turned 30 year old this week. Um, and I wrote a big piece about it and I shared it across social media. And a lot of people um, went, oh my God, I remember playing this. But it was not picked up anywhere in Scottish press. It just was not cared about. You know, the Evening Telegraph in Dundee, I think, did a piece. That's what I say, not for a lack of trying. I saw your tweet, uh, you... I don't know if it was passive-aggressively, is maybe the way to describe it. (laughs) passive-aggressively. It's like, hey, BBC. It's like, hey, STV. Hey, Channel 4. Hey, The Scotsman. Hey, The Herald. Hey, The Daylight. Why is nobody paying attention to this? Um, and I think it, what's starting to get to me is the fact that gaming is is kind of appreciated when it achieves commercial success, then the press and the media are forced to pay attention. You know, Grand Theft Auto being the case in point here. It is too big to ignore. If you do not run a story about it, you know, breaking seven world records in its opening week, you're clearly um, missing the point. You're, you're looking foolish. But... Uh, Games don't receive the the recognition I believe they deserve as cultural artefacts. You know, you can find discussion groups and you can find long lyrical pieces and everything from The Guardian to The Scotsman looking at the, the, you know, the anniversary of the release of Mogwai's seminal album Young Team or the date when Irvin Welsh's first edition of Trainspotting hit the market and the lasting cultural impact and the legacy and yada, yada, yada. And video games are ignored, which doesn't seem particularly fair. But then that that led us into the discussion about, okay, well, we here, the three of us, are a media platform, amongst many other things. Um, And so we want to hear about games coming out of Scotland, and we encourage studios um, and individuals across the whole of the country to get in touch and tell us about your games. Um, In fact, I think that's been a, a... recurring plea in all of these podcasts which is for the love of god tell us about your games um and all too often i find out about games because it's on you know the the personal facebook stream of the managing director or the creative director or somebody on the team rather than getting a nice you know steaming hot press release you know fresh from the press um and it sort of led us on to the whole thing why is it so difficult to find out about the games coming out of Scotland and is it something to do with us which I don't believe because we're lovely oh we're just the best we are we are or is it because game studios are not necessarily doing what they need to do to get information about their games out there so gentlemen 
Over to you. Um, yeah, speaking about press releases, uh, we covered it in the uh, Ali Low uh, interview about how um, Tapeworm Disco Puzzle was my first article on the website, or that and Date of the Dead and Strange Sickness all being greenlit. And I spoke, of, uh, I spoke to him about how, because it was my first article, we bit wet behind the ears, I just emailed everyone involved with the three projects immediately and was like, hey, I'm going to cover your game. Do you want to like speak? Because that's what you're taught when you study journalism at uni is like, if you're going to like, speak about someone, talk to them, like send them an email and just say, you know, I'm covering you. Here's your opportunity to like drop me a quote or, you know, like tell me a little bit more about your, like what, you, what we're talking about. And um, like Ali got back to me within the hour and sent me the link to his press release and I remember getting the email at the time and turning to my girlfriend and it was like an A4 document of just like yeah so here's everything you need to know about Tapeworm Disco Puzzle and I was like geez this guy's like re clearly really passionate and it was perfect because even though you know I didn't use all of it it was great to have that information and if we ever needed to report on it in the future like, let's say Andrew picked up a piece about Tapeworm Disco Puzzle. Um, I can just forward you that email. You know, like find it, send it to you, and now you've got all this information. It's just, I think that is just such an important thing to do, is just to, like, tell everyone that will listen about your project. Because that's the only way you get your name out there. Okay, but I, I feel that I've been banging this drum for the best part of two decades. Um, given that I ran a PR agency and uh, I worked with dozens, if not hundreds, of game studios, and it's and it's all too rare. Um, and and without you know bigging myself up any more than is strictly necessary, um, before uh, Flea hit the market, Ali got in touch via Facebook Messenger and said, "I want to pick your brains about this marketing thing." And so we had a call and. I'd, talked to him about press kits and what you include and what you the whole point of a press release is to make it simple for people in the press influencers whoever to say something nice about your game oh yeah i'm as a journalist a journalism student um yeah like i'm very well aware that the best press releases are the ones that you can essentially copy paste change some words here and there and that's the article you know like yeah. that is the best example of a press release 100 percent so so why is it guys why is it that it's so difficult to find out what games companies are up to especially games companies here in scotland there's maybe a degree to which the relationship with the games companies and press is like there's less of a i mean obviously it's been going for like 20 20 or 30 years now but i suppose with with music or films or something like that, there's you know there's more of a long-running relationship and people know how those things are covered. Um, I think part of it, especially on the indie side, might be a little bit about what uh, we spoke with um, Matt Barr from the University of Glasgow earlier on, and he was saying that you know if you're an indie developer, you have so many hats to wear, and marketing might be one of them. But and it's like so important, obviously, to the success of your your product, but that might not be your skill set. And the time that you spend doing that or answering emails or stuff like that, you know, that's time that's directly coming out of the rest of the things that you are doing. Um, so there's maybe that aspect to it where if you're like swamped with what you're in or you're or even just your head's in the zone of um, programming this particular thing today or I'm working on this art thing today and you're not, you know, you're maybe not necessarily thinking about that aspect of it at the same time. Um, so there could be a degree of maybe like tunnel vision, but obviously pure speculation on my part. Well, no, it's not. It's not because this ties directly into the Games Guru um, column that we'll be running tomorrow, where we asked um, the great and the good of Scotland's games industry about the notion of working with a publisher. And this is one of the key differences and one of the big ways in which the industry has evolved in the last few years. So way back in the mists of time when I started, if you wanted to get a game onto the market, you had to have a relationship with a publisher because it was a really expensive business. Making a game was expensive and it was complicated and you needed a big team. And then you had a very limited number of ways to get it onto the market itself, right? It had to go on a, a dedicated console or it had to go on a high-end PC and you needed a relationship with Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo 
and you you had to have a publisher because the publisher assumed the risk you know they paid for the development of the game in some cases they did the manufacturing of the disc they distributed it to all of the shops and then they did the pr and the marketing and the advertising which got you in front of consumers so that you had a nice simple six week window where people would go into their local game store or supermarket or wherever and they could see your game and they would buy it all that's gone all that's out the window yes it still exists but for the vast majority of game developers out there now it's the opportunity is to take take their future into their own hands you know digital distribution platforms like steam and itch and humble bundle and all of the other myriad ways in which you can get your game onto the market including the vastly oversaturated app stores if you're doing something on mobile um mean that game developers can do everything themselves but the problem is that that's a completely different skill set to making a game so yes you're right andrew it's like if you are pouring 100% of your time and resources into making a game making something that you're proud of and something that you are really keen that your friends are going to see and that you think is is wonderful and you get to the end and you go well i hope people f- discover that you may not be around for game two, right? Or if you get to the end and you go, my game is finished. And then you go, right, now I must start doing some press or maybe I'll see if somebody wants to review it. You've missed the entire previous three, four, six, 12 months that you had when the game was in development to go out and find the journalists and find that, you know, build those relationships and figure out who's interested in you know, a physics-based 3D puzzler or an endless runner featuring dinosaurs or a real-time strategy tower defense game or whatever. If you're not using the entire length of your development period, then you're relying on one chance, which is you send it out to the press and they love it. But if the reviewer doesn't love it or doesn't like those kind of games or is hungover or had a fight or argument with their significant other, or they've just got 30 games and a stack to review and you get five, 10 minutes of their attention and the first five, 10 minutes of your game aren't that engaging, you're doomed. So I get it, it's hard. It's something else that you've got to figure out. But you, if you're not working with a publisher, you have to do it. Uh, if I... Yeah. Can just interject quickly. No. Sp- oh wait. Oh, yes. um, yeah. I'll just. I'll just leave. <laughs> yeah. Just there. Um, yeah. Um, we were speaking last week about this before the podcast. Uh, before we were recording, and I mentioned how when I'm in uni, we have classes that are with media students, PR students, and travel and tourism as well. So it's like it's like I find the four different areas are grouped together. And it means that, yeah, we meet PR people and we, yeah, we meet media people and stuff and we learn little skills from them and they learn skills from us and it just means that when you go into the big bad world, your relationships with people at different um, sort of jobs to you, you can sort of relate to them a wee bit better. And it does kind of baffle me that, you know, universities that do sort of game degrees don't say, okay, well, we're going to we're going to do a games marketing course and we're going to introduce the PR people, like the PR students or the marketing students. And it's like for your coursework, I want you to, you know, be in a group with a mixture of games development and PR or and marketing. And we're going to like come up with the concept of a game and market it and, you know, like try and make it as successful as possible and you know this could all be sort of hypotheticals like what would you do like what would the game be about who would you contact and you could just do a report you know we're not asking oh you know you don't need to write actually make a game in a semester on top of your other courses you're you're right up to a point you are right up to a point but the reality of today's market is unless you are working within a studio and you have a specific role within a studio um unless it's a very, very large studio, you know, 10 more than, let's say more than 15 people, um, the chances are you're going to have to at least be aware of this kind of stuff because in a micro studio, which is 
you know, becoming more and more common across the country. Somebody's going to have to do it. And if it's not a dedicated PR person or social media person, it's going to be uh, the project leader or the lead programmer or the artist or somebody. And what you were just describing about university is so smart because it makes you aware of the, the, you know, the interrelated disciplines and the different skills. Whereas I worry that that in the UK, but in Scotland specifically, we have an almost complete isolation. So, you know, the game design development production students are operating uh, entirely hypothetically and are not getting the chance to, you know, build projects that are across schools. You know, so... Let's be honest, it's faster, easier and cheaper now than it has ever been to make games. To get a game onto the App Store costs you, what, 40 bucks? And Google Play is free. And um, creating your own itchy page, itch page is free. You, there is nothing to stop you getting a game out on the market. And, you know, it's only when that you have something out there, when you've actually found that it's impossible to get even your mum to download your game or leave you a review, you go, oh, this is maybe a bit harder than we thought. You know, so it doesn't take away from the technical and creative requirements of making a video game, but it would give you an awful lot of context for getting that game onto the market in a way which people will find it and care about it and at some point give you money. I mean, th there is a, I mean, I think a lot of what we're talking about is, is um, especially in, in relation to publishers, the people without a publisher kind of having to do those roles themselves. And there is, you know, there is precedent for it. Like um, there's the the studio Vlambeer who are finished now. Basically, they were a two-man indie team uh, from the Netherlands. They made like an open source press kit mm -hmm. tool that you can use for specifically for indie studios. And it seems like anytime I see a press kit, it's using this. I think this is one of the things, it's, it's just the reality now. And the thing is, you do not have to do it. Oops. You do not have to engage um, with the press if you find it big and weird and scary. But you need to have somebody who will. And what you need to do as a developer, whether you're an independent, you know, sole uh, developer, a micro studio, you have to be able to make an informed decision. Right. So this comes back to all these basic business skills that we kind of keep touching on in all the various podcasts. It's it's not enough to make a perfect game. You know, it can be the world's best game, but if nobody knows about it, nobody's going to give you money and you're not going to get to make your second game. Yeah, mm. if, if you don't mind me adding, I'm going to go and plug something of ours. Um, but if you're a dev in Scotland and yeah, you do find it difficult to that yeah talk to the press or you've tried to send out emails to yeah like the guardians gaming section and ign gamespot yada yada and they're just not getting back to you we have a facebook group it's just called scottish games i think it's all one word if you search it on facebook you'll find it if you're a dev in scotland anyway join the group and then you will have direct access to all three of us through our personal facebook pages just Drop us a message, open messenger, just say, hey, I'm wanting to be, I'm making this game, uh, could you guys talk about it? And even if you just want us to mention it on the podcast, just say, oh, by the way, this is coming out. Or if you want a full-blown article, or if you want to sit down with me and I'll play the game with you like we did for Jock and uh, um, Catriona, then that's totally fine. Like, you know, we're, we're happy to work with you. That's why we're here, is to try and promote the industry, especially in this country. Now, this is interesting because what Ryan has just done is plugged SGN on an SGN podcast, right? Pay attention, devs. Pay attention, game creators. Marketing. What are you doing, <laughs> right? That's a really, really important skill. Now, that's not being a sellout. That's not doing something shameful. That's actually saying we're here to help, you know, Talk to us. We, we, we rock. Tell us things. And and you know what's even worse? You know what's even worse? Is when you get somebody who does get in touch and somebody, and it's all too rare, somebody who does, you know, let you know about a game, but they let you know about it 
in the most disappointing, underwhelming and emotionless way that they possibly can. Well, we've got a game coming out, but yeah, it's not actually, you know, it wasn't the project that we wanted to do and it was, you know, it was just going to be some... Sorry, so sorry. And you're like, if you can't get excited about it, how are we supposed to? Genuinely, genuinely, I have had a press release from a studio which shall remain nameless that was about four lines long that talked about a game that they had coming out. It had the title, it had a very brief description of what it was. That was it. No links, no video, no images, no nothing. And then they got pissed off and said, well, we sent you a press release. Why didn't you do anything about it? Or why didn't you do anything with it? And I'm like, it wasn't a press release. It was a subject line. It was a post-it note. Yeah. So on the polar opposite of that, um, I emailed someone within the industry uh, a couple of weeks ago and I'm sitting down and speaking with them tomorrow and it was about something totally unrelated to them having a game coming out and they just went, oh yeah, by the way, I've got a game and here's a quote about it if you want to do it. Like, you know, I'm working on a game right now, here's a wee quote for you if you want to cover it. That was showing initiative. That was just like... You know, I haven't told anyone about it just yet. We're still ba- uh, still making it, but here you go. Like, here's a wee exclusive for you. And, you know, like, here's... Yeah, here's a wee quote about it. So then you can mention that. And it's turned into, yeah, we're talking tomorrow and it should be on the channel next week. It's not rocket science. It's really not rocket science. No, and it doesn't I'm, have to be. I definitely get it, though, I'd say. Like, I, I, I'm definitely of that kind of demeanour that, like trying to big up your own stuff is just the hardest most horrible thing to do um but i i guess you just have to think that we're as outsiders are going to be much more interested in your thing and take it and see it in a different way than you are we're not going to be as critical as you are i guess right so like we're going to be excited about it no matter what it is that's the thing um but on, on the subject of bigging yourself up though something that uh i learned today is that nobody submits their games to the scottish bafta I don't know if you have more to say about that, Brian. (laughs) All I have more to say on this issue, pretty much, you know, on an endless fashion, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, you know, so again, this this is a very, very basic marketing principle. Why do you enter an award, right? It's not just to get a nice metal or perspex trophy that goes in the boardroom and then you have to dust. The whole point is that you put award-winning. It's even better if you can put BAFTA award-winning. You know, it's a massive, massive marketing tool that you can use on your app store listing, on your CV, on your LinkedIn, anywhere. You know, if you've got something which is award winning, it's eye catching. It sets you apart. To add to that. uh, Sorry. Yeah, I was about to say, like, how many AAA games have you seen in like game stores that have the Wii sticker that just say BAFTA nominated? You know, that's that's a big thing. And that's a seal of quality in its own way. And, like, yeah, just by putting your name in the hat, more people will see, like, your title. So surely it's just a good idea. It's a differentiator. You know, it, it's... We live in a world where we are swamped with stuff, right? Um, Phil Harrison from Microsoft a few months ago, last year, I think, said, Microsoft are no longer competing with Sony. Right? They're competing against Netflix. And that's the reality, right? We only have so many hours in the day to do stuff, right? So games are now competing against Zoom calls. They're competing against Netflix, Amazon Prime, Spotify, YouTube. Oh my God, what a time soak. TikTok, it's a big, big war for attention. And anything that you can do that will set you apart from not just your peers and colleagues and competitors, but all the other ways in which people could be spending their time. You know, after this podcast tonight, do I go and log on and play Titanfall 2 or do I go and finish my book? Do I go and watch another episode of The Expanse or do I go and polish off the boys? Do I go for a walk in the fresh air? And it got even worse when there were things like pubs and leisure centres and gyms where we could all go to. We're in a war for attention. And and it's not just the other game developers you're competing against. You're competing against the world's largest media companies. You know, trying to chip away and get a little bit of mind space in a world where the Mandalorian and, and the Expanse and, you know, all of these other um, competitors for your attention exist mean that 
even if you can you know slap a big flashing red and green neon sign on your game to say we rock which is essentially what you're doing with a, a, a competition an award um has to be a good thing surely if anything like going back to your sort of like um competing with netflix um sort of surely any win for gaming like you know people choosing games over television and film and all the other outlets we have is a win for every development studio studio because i don't know about you guys but when i finish a title the first thing i think about once the credits are finished and i go oh that was really good is what am i going to play next you know it's like and so whenever a game catches someone's attention let's say um Undertale. Undertale comes out, people who maybe don't play games as regularly see it on YouTube and, you know, social media and stuff, people are talking about it. So they get it, they play it, and then they get to the end of it and go, I really enjoyed that, what am I going to play next? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it, I, yeah, I don't think we're, I don't think developers compete as much as they, as, as much as we presume they do, if you get what I mean. It's, it, you yeah. know, it's even down to simple things like app store optimization. The name of your game is a marketing decision. The copy that you put underneath your game is a marketing decision. The screenshots that you choose to put in your listing on the app stores or Steam or, you know, Etch or wherever, they're all marketing decisions. I've, I've got an entire presentation I've been threatening to do for 10 years called The Art of the Screenshot. Because, you know, all too often you'll get developers who will sit and just bang out a hundred screenshots and stick them in a folder in the press kit if they do a press kit and then fire it out to somebody without actually having looked to see if any of them are any damn good whatsoever you know you have to look at them in context shrink them down to about this size and have a look and see what sticks out and see which ones catch your eye if you look at youtube all the successful youtubers out there um, especially if you're if you're into any of the cooking channels, not games I'm watching on there. Um, the thumbnail for the for the channel, the ch- thumbnail for the video makes a huge huge difference, and you you see people within the channel going, oh, that's the one, that's what I'm using for the thumbnail, um, and even the the games YouTubers are doing it, but all too often developers aren't giving a, a tinker's cuss for the material that they're sending out, if they're sending out material at all. All of this comes together to kind of make people excited about the thing that you're spending so much of your time and resources and money on creating. Surely you want to give it a fighting chance. Well, um, just sort of off the back of that, I don't know how many hundreds of hours I have lost to Skyrim. However, I can guarantee you, if I loaded up Skyrim right now, I could get four boring screenshots to put on a Steam page, if I were listing it. You know, but, you know, if you go on, yes, um, Skyrim's Steam uh, page right now, the chances are there'll be a dragon, there'll be a Draugr, there's going to be, like, your, like the character's going to be holding a big sword or a hammer, or he's going to fire a bow or something, and it's all dyna- like, dynamic shots. It's quite a quite an industry term there, but, you know, like... Just, you know, you can make a game look a hell of a lot better with the right choice of screenshots. You, you, you basically want every single thing that comes out of your company to make it look like you have cool shit going on. Every game has downtime. You know, like, Uncharted is one of my favourite franchises of all time. But to sell the fact that there's big, high, you know, explosions and, you know, cool stuff happening, you have to have that sort of uh, slower moment when Nate's just talking to Sully. And you don't screenshot that; you screenshot fights. Okay, let's look at a, let's look at a couple of other industries, right? Tourism. When we used to be allowed to go places, right? And they're selling you the exotic Barbados holiday. They don't show you the bins around the back of the hotel. Why? <laughs> another another white beach with incredible clear blue water and a sun, you know, a, a cloudless sky sellouts no that's not selling out that's showing the people the cool stuff restaurants they don't show you their food scraps you know they're not here's the food bin they're not on social media they're not starting social media channels and going we've totally fucked this one up oh my god (laughs) look at this walked away forgot about it incinerated they're showing you the real (laughs) but but 
But in video games, we have this tendency to go, it's a game. People should come and play it. And if they don't come and play it, there's a tendency to blame other factors, which is, um, you know, oh, people just didn't get it or it was released at the wrong time. Ignoring the fact that actually maybe, A, you didn't make a very good game. And I don't believe that anybody sets out to make a game which isn't very good. Or B, you failed to capture people's attention. You didn't engage with them. You didn't make them excited for it. I mean, how many times have you yeah. gone and added something to your Steam wish list? Or, you know, said, actually, I'll, I'll sign up for early access for this because this is intriguing. This, I believe this is something that I would want to play. For sure. And to, to kind of combat that sort of sellout mentality, like, I, again, like, I get it. Like, um, if you, you know, if you're an independent game developer, maybe you're like a bit suspicious of that kind of, you know, um, big budget marketing thing. Um, but the reality is, is that if you want to come at from that perspective, like these big companies are, a lot of them are, are, um, you know, they're putting huge budgets into marketing like the most inane rubbish, right? <laughs> and like the thing that you have is like, it's basically your moral imperative to have people pay attention to something that, you know, like isn't just the other thing that we've seen a thousand times, like, and, you know, being a sellout in that quote unquote sellout in that way, like, you know, you're, you're doing a favor, you're doing us a favor. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to feel bad about it. Like, um, the, 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 the people that are um, promoting stuff that, you know, might be somewhat less uh, um, valuable, they don't have any bones about promoting that. They don't care. <laughs> like, they're, they're not having a moral quandary over whether it's a good idea to, whether they are, they're truly deserving of attention. They don't give a shit. <laughs> like, so like, you've got something valuable like people deserve to they deserve something like that right yeah. they do they do and 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 the thing is that when you talk to a lot of developers um it's only once you've kind of broken the ice and spent time talking to them that you actually get to the bits of the game that make them excited that they're that they're happy with and it can be absolutely wonderful to be you know in a room with somebody or at an event or on a Zoom call, and all of a sudden you kind of get to the bit where they lose themselves in the game and, and what they're spending so much time on. And they start talking about, and we can do this and we're doing this, and, and this came about because we tried that, and, you know. And, and the enthusiasm, the passion comes through. Um, and then, if you're lucky, at the end of the project, you'll get a press release and they'll have a, a, a list of three bullet points one of which is contains levels, you know, multiple playable characters. And you're like, uh, what, um, what, what can I do with that? Can you know, I? And you, sorry, go on, uh, Yeah, no, I was just going to say, um, I get that, you know, if, so, if developers are listening to this, they might think we're ragging on them and we're being, you know, like we're sort of saying, this is everything you're doing wrong. And kind of, yeah, a little bit. But we're, we're meaning it in a kind-hearted kind of way and active criticism and i also want to mention um andrew you were mentioning how people sort of sometimes feel like i don't really want to promote this is it worth promoting i've never received an email or text or message in any way from a developer and went oh do i really have to cover this like i get excited i'm like oh yeah it's a new game i, I want to look into this you know we love games of course we want to look into it you know like, we'll give your t your game the time of day and sort of make sure, like, you know, think about what we can do with it and try to promote it and help you guys, like... So please, yeah, get in touch. Yeah. Absolutely. For the love of God, please. You know, trying to sh promote and showcase all of the awesome things happening in Scotland is much, much harder if you aren't being told about all of the awesome and pioneering things that are happening in Scotland. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that's... I think that wraps up our nice wee rant slash discussion about um yeah, <laughs> about yeah. selling games um so shut you me down boys shut me down before this goes into hour two <laughs> yeah. oh. oh no go for it andrew oh, ryan's starting to look like he's directed by uh oh what's that guy's name uh windows reffing the drive guy Oh yeah, like basically Ryan Gosling over there. I can hear the synth soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, I'm fine with being compared to Ryan Gosling. I am 
100% on board with that. <laughs> so yeah, that kind of wraps up the podcast for this week. Uh, all that's left to do is our SGN highlight. Um, and this week, I'll take charge on it at this. Um, we want to promote friend of the show, uh, Lucy Holland's radio show, uh, The Console on Scala Radio. It is, to my knowledge, the only uh, nationwide radio show that focuses on video game music. So definitely give that a listen. Um, and also, thank you, Lucy, uh, for playing a song for me on Saturday. That was really nice of you. Um, yeah, she's... Just, she's great person and the show is brilliant and i try to listen to it every week and do you know what let's promote scala as well if i can't listen to it on saturday night i've downloaded the scala app and you can listen to it throughout the week on catch up so don't feel like you have to be there bang on five o'clock on is it five o'clock five till six i think that's what it is i should have looked this up um <laughs> yeah but you don't need to be there when the show's live you can listen to it anytime yeah, it's official friend of the show, Lucy's the Brains Behind the Play Away Festival, has uh, done a huge amount of work um, in and around gaming and interactive music in the past, including an installation and performance of the Dear Esther soundtrack on Inchcombe Island in the middle of the 4th, uh, which had to be seen to be believed, but some very, very cool stuff. And if you like your game soundtracks, the chances are you'll love her show. So check it out, Scala Radio. And uh, again, tell her we sent you. Perfect. Uh, so yeah, that wraps it. Uh, wraps up. Uh, is there any plans for next week, guys, that you want to tell people about? Next week is the Playaway yeah, Festival. Next week. So it's going to be busy, busy, busy. Um, we're hopefully going to be splitting up a lot of the events, a lot of the panels, a lot of the talks, and bringing you as much coverage as we can over the, the next fortnight because an awful lot of really, really interesting topics out there. So watch this space and we'll be playing away across the next two weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the main thing. Yeah, play away is definitely what we're going to be covering. Um, so yeah, stick around for that. All the coverage uh, and I'll obviously go check out play away link in the show notes. So anyway, thank you very much for watching slash listening, depending on your platform of choice. You've been listening to the Scottish Games Network podcast. I've been Ryan. I've been Brian. And I've been Andrew. Thank you very much, and we shall see you next time. Thanks, folks. Take care. <laughs>